to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 55. Welcome back, everybody. Is anyone annoyed of that, that like, welcome back? Like, I'm getting annoyed of my own voice, but maybe it's just because I've been like in this pandemic. You've been trapped with yourself for too long. Right. Like, everything's annoying me lately. Yeah. Like, normally, (laughs) maybe you'd get mad at like a coworker or something, but since there is no coworker, you're just getting irrationally mad at yourself. Yeah. The sound of my voice. Well, guys. If if you're triggered by our intro, comment somewhere below right now. Well, guys, we're back and I'm coming from you. I'm coming to you. Sorry, I'm coming to you live from a closet. From a closet. Yes. Yeah, I see that. There are clothes behind you. There are hangers. Yeah, you're definitely in a closet. You said that actually the sound is a little bit better from my closet, so that makes me feel better. It does. It sounds more like a studio setting to me. Well. Yeah, it's like the, the richness in your voice is very clear. So who says you need to be rich to have studio quality audio? Just... Throw your shit in a closet. <laughs> Hurt your back by right. hunching over because you're no longer a teenager and now your spine doesn't work. And there you go. Mm. You've got it. Movie magic. Podcast magic. Yeah. I wonder how many podcasts this particular podcast has inspired because we've made it sound both so easy but like so hard at the same time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. We're like, yeah, you can just be on the floor in a bathroom and <laughs> if your audio like comes out the left speaker and the right speaker, it's fine. You'll still have a career. Yeah, like, fuck know? it. Yeah. If this is your first time listening to an episode of Let's Get Haunted, welcome. You can skip to about the I'd say this is going to be a short intro episode, maybe like a the 10 or 15 minute mark and we will probably have started the story for today that's how it works around here that's how it works and I don't really have any personal hauntings this week I don't think do you <sighs> not really anything interesting happened to you um well I went to the P.O. box and I got a package and it's for you Natalia oh my god wait just for me just it's for you. just for Natalia it's just for you. oh wow I'm gonna read you the letter and then I'm gonna show you what you got so oh my god this is just for me yes it's wow, everything like- you've ever wanted <laughs> Okay, let me read you this letter. It says, Dear Nat and Allie, hello again. I wanted... Hey, I... this is not just for N- me. It hey, says, hold Dear on, Nat and hold Allie. Hold on, hold on, hold your horses. I wanted to start by saying congratulations, Nat. I know you're going to be a great mom and your forest wedding idea sounds really cool. I was listening to your podcast while driving home from school and let's just say it was a good thing I was at a red light. I'm so happy for you. I decided that Enzo should have his own LGH alien, but with a few adjustments just for him. First being that this one is smaller, so it looks more like a baby. Running with this theme, I decided to turn the shirt into a onesie, but it came out a little wonky, so I hope you don't mind it too much. I also embroidered the eyes instead of using buttons, as I figured it would be safer, but I absolutely cannot make circles, so they are more like squares. Another thing to not look too closely at if you don't mind. Despite its flaws, I hope you and one day Enzo like it. I also wanted to say thank you so much for telling my listener story. It was so cool to listen to that episode. It made it seem real in a way that just talking to friends about it doesn't. So thank you. My aunt listens to your podcast too sometimes, and she says that you guys are great role models and way better than Netflix. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) 
Speaking of which, she told my parents about the last letter I wrote in, and I feel they would want me to clarify that I'm not actually banned from Netflix. I just have a time limit on screen time, but not so much anymore because of quarantine, which is why I listen in the car. I think it is ultimately a good thing, and I probably shouldn't complain. I don't want my parents to come across as cruel because they aren't. They were very excited about my last letter, and even though the stories I relay from your podcast worry them, they have no issue, at least to my knowledge, about my listening. Also, I'm 17 now. Yay. And I've started doing crochet commissions over quarantine now that I've gotten a bit better. I can't believe I've been listening to your podcast for a year. It seems like it's been no time at all. I can't wait to listen to all of the future ones. And congratulations again, Kate P. So, Natalia, this is the same girl who made us oh. our own little crocheted <gasps> aliens. Oh, it's so cute. It's a and little now, baby crocheted alien. Yeah, I'm oh. showing Natalia over FaceTime. So it's cute. so cute. And on the back, yeah. it says Enzo. Oh, that's so cute. Ah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Isn't it adorable? I, I don't know what to say. That's so sweet. I'm for sure once Enzo is like born and can hold things, I'm going to take a picture with him holding it. Yeah, absolutely. This is super cute. Um, and I love that she even had the like consideration to not put buttons for eyes because she didn't want Enzo to accidentally teeth on it and choke yeah. or something. So this, yeah. is, this is very this is like the type of intelligence as a 17 year old that I never had. Like, I, right. I would have not even thought of that. Yeah, I, I was listening to her letter and I was thinking, like, this is just the nicest teenage girl like I've ever heard. You know, listens to her parents like she hears that people on the radio are having a baby. So she like hand makes them (laughs) a toy. Yeah. She's very, very sweet. That's how you are. That's how you be a good listener, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Kate. And don't worry. um, We never thought your parents were bad. I think it's very obvious from your letters that you have turned out excellent, which means your parents and your aunt and everyone involved in your upbringing have done an excellent job. An excellent, excellent job. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I'm like smiling so big right now. (laughs) You made Natalia's whole morning. I'm also like, how are we good role models? What does she tell her parents about us? That's a good role model. Okay. So speaking of possibly not being good role models, the reason why I'm in the (laughs) closet right now is actually because where I live we got a complaint from a neighbor saying that we scream too loud when we record and that we cuss too much what yeah (laughs) yeah oh that's true we do cuss quite a bit but I feel like we edit a lot of it out so yeah I also don't feel like I cuss any more than I do in my regular day-to-day life I mean unless I'm at work obviously you can't cuss at work but right in like my regular having a jolly old time zooming with friends i feel like i i cuss just as much i i feel like when i'm hearing a haunted story like my go-to response is like what the fuck (laughs) yeah (laughs) while i'm still processing how i actually feel about something you know well because it's just like some of these stories are so outrageous that there's no other way you can express yourself other than to say what the fuck right i'm gonna okay now with that with your neighbor challenging me like that i'm gonna try to cuss less like what can we replace everyone that's listening to this let's all try to cuss less from now until our next episode and let us know how it goes what should we replace i think we should say heck like what the heck or uh we should come up with our own curse words on this show what the ghost yeah what the maybe we should have like one of those you know will be like baba yaga's legs (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) by the beard of 
the poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we need. Okay, yeah. if you guys come up with some good ones, let us know. Comment, comment a bunch of them, and we're gonna try to incorporate those from now on. That's a great idea, and maybe we can all try to cuss a little bit less. And then if we decide that that is a pipe dream, we will immediately go back on this and forget we ever said this. Right. Love that. Love that for us. As is customary with our podcast. I also wanted to thank our donors for this episode. We have Gina G, Amanda S, Sarah M, Krista D, Audra T, Haley C, Chrissy Lynn S, Timothy and Haley from New Zealand, Alicia C, Chanel, and Bork. Thank you guys. And Christian M, Brielle S, Maya L, Sarah M, Janine H, Femi H, Logan R, and Femi H again. Thank you guys so much for donating this month. It really means the most to us. Like we subsist 100% on donor donations and we don't have sponsors. (laughs) If you guys are listening to this. We've had we've tried to have sponsors in the back, but in the past, but it turned out very haunted. And right. I don't know if we've ever told those stories on this podcast, but uh, maybe one day we will. I don't want to like tell other will. sponsors what might happen to them if they're on our <laughs> podcast. Like they'll become haunted too. No, right. If you guys follow us, then you've probably heard us on Sugar Pine Seven, and you can go listen to their podcast episode where we touched a little bit on what happened with some of those sponsors. It was very haunted. Right. Right. And if you want to donate to us, you can Venmo me at Matt Strawn or PayPal me, paypal.me slash Nat Strawn or Cash App me. The username is at dollar sign Natalia Strawn. Or you can Venmo me at USA, or you can send us a Ko-fi donation by going to letsgethaunted.com clicking on the menu bar and then you will see a giant button that says donate slay slay and actually natalia i do have one really really quick positive haunting that happened this past week that involves some listeners of our podcast so if anybody has been following me on social media this entire year essentially um i never shut the fuck up about (laughs) agriculture And there was a hearing recently in the county where I work that was determining whether or not hemp was going to be allowed to continue being grown. And it was actually because a bunch of rich folks in Moore Park complained that the smell of hemp is offensive to them. That was the entire basis for whether or not it was going to be banned, which Mm -hmm. to me is like just the most privileged, like negative privileged thing you could possibly say. And also the dumbest, like the logic behind that is really dumb because if you've ever smelled like broccoli or cabbage, both of those smell like straight diarrhea in the field and (laughs) nobody complains about that. So it was it was just like boomers being boomers trying to make it so that everyone was going to lose their jobs, um, people who are working in hemp. And because of COVID, normally during these hearings, you can go in person to speak about it. But they changed the requirements so that you, in order to speak, you had to have an email address and a Zoom account, which Mm -hmm. is extremely unfair because it eliminated a lot of field workers from being able to advocate for themselves. Because a lot of field workers don't, obviously, I mean, a lot of people don't have Zoom. Like, I just think that was is really short-sighted and a bad decision that they made. 
So then um, basically had to cause a fuss, make it so that they made alternative ways for people to speak. And uh, on my Twitter, I had said, hey, if you live in Ventura County and you also think this is stupid, reach out to me because I will sign you up. I will walk you through the process of how to speak and we'll try to see if we can get this law changed. And a lot of people responded and actually spoke at that hearing. I was so excited. Wait, just random people? People who follow me on Twitter. um, I'm assuming some of these people listen to the podcast as well. So I wanted to give a special shout out to the people who dedicated their time I mean, this was hours of time. I really can't emphasize enough. They make it very hard for you to be able to speak. And we got the law changed. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is a positive haunting. I wanted to thank Melvin Soriano, Zenobia Hernandez, Marcos Lopez, and Kylie. You guys fucking stepped up to the plate. I think that this was really heartening for me because I'm really used to seeing people kind of It's not even that people don't care about local government. I think it's just that people are unaware, right? Like a lot of people don't know what's going on in their local government. And that I think is partially due to media. Media really harps on what's going on at the federal level, which is also important. But I think a lot of people don't realize that the stuff that goes on at your local government actually affects you in ways that are much more tangible than federal Mm -hmm. government, especially in the United States where state laws override federal laws a lot of the time, especially in California, we're kind of special here where like our governor kind of does whatever he wants and so a lot of stuff that goes on at the federal level really doesn't affect us so it's much more important in my opinion to be paying attention to what your local government is doing because that stuff really does affect people on a day-to-day basis so I just wanted to say thank you to everyone that's literally the only reason they didn't like it is because it smelled I'm not shitting you at all and there were so many I if I can I want to drop in a soundbite here of the most Karen woman I've ever heard in my life who spoke during this hearing and was like the smell is offensive like just going off about how much she hates the smell of hemp and it it was really it was really absurd because so all of this is public record you could i'm sure search this google this and find all of the people who spoke including me but it was really absurd because you had about 13 field workers talking about how this law has negatively impacted their lives how they are now on welfare how their friends and family have been laid off how like hemp offers them so many opportunities that they don't have otherwise full-time employment they don't have to because a lot of people don't know agriculture is seasonal So if you work on seasonal crops, you're out of work every three months because you're Mm -hmm. just working for the time that that crop is in the ground. So all these people were going on about like, wow, our lives have been so negatively impacted all because people don't like the smell. And then this lady pops on and she's like, well, I'm offended that these field workers are saying the smell doesn't bother them. I'm telling you that this smell is atrocious. And her last name was her last name was Mayo. I shit you not. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I mean, when I I remember being a kid we lived in this one neighborhood and it was pretty nice but it was right next to a dog food factory so like the whole like entire city just smelled like Purina dog food chow but Mm -hmm. no one ever complained we just accepted it we were just like oh yeah that's Edmond Oklahoma it smells like dog food there like this is just part of our life you know well that's that's the thing is like you wouldn't move next to an airport and then all of a sudden become angry that planes take off and make noise. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you yeah, they're moving into yeah. an agricultural area and then trying exactly. to be, trying to, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, good job, Alyssa. It sounds like you really made some stuff happen. I'm very happy for you. Thank you. Well, I'm very proud of all the people who stepped up to the plate that live in Ventura County that said, hey, this is a bad fucking idea. It negatively impacts people and then took it a step further and actually spoke because that's the hard part is actually taking it that extra step. I think a lot of people realize when bad things are happening, but don't know how to make a difference. And so I just really appreciate all the people that took the time out of their busy schedules to make that difference and go that extra mile. Wow. I was going to say some, yeah, some people were saying, oh, Alyssa has perfect Spanish from last episode. And I was like, yeah, if you guys didn't realize this, Alyssa went to school for uh, Spanish and Italian and she speaks fluent Spanish and she communicates with uh, field workers and seasonal farm workers all the time and helps them with um, communicating with the larger branches of companies that employ them so that's why her spanish is so perfect and she's clearly very passionate about it so oh, that's very cool Natalia. Yeah. that's probably the, yeah that's honestly that's the best compliment i think anyone could give me so thank you very much i really appreciate oh. it <laughs> you deserve it <laughs> thanks all right are you ready natalia for the story today I am ready. Okay, Natalia, I'm glad we had a lot of positive hauntings in the intro because this is not a positive haunting story. Oh, no. And I know. And because of that, I have to start with a little disclaimer. Oh, God. Um, so normally on this show, we like to have a little fun and keep things lighthearted and spooky. But today's story is anything but lighthearted. The story I am going to tell you today is a horrific example of true crime meeting the paranormal. There are victims involved in this story that are still alive today, and the case remains unsolved. Due to the sensitive nature of today's topic, I ask people who are squeamish to stop listening now and wait for next episode when the topic is a little less heavy. My eyebrows are raised right now. I know. Natalia's upset. Okay. I'm interested. I'm interested. I'm, I'm like, why, why, are you, why are you telling people not to listen? Listen, guys. I'm listening. You guys have to listen. Th- this, is a, whew, this is a heavy one. Okay. So, Natalia, long ago last year, we talked about the Jameson family disappearance in episode 17. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, that was like the first time you did some weird shit and like Facebooked messaged one of the people who was involved in the story and talked to them. Yes, personally. that is. Yes. How, how could you forget? <laughs> yes, that was the first time I was I was weird. So so that story took place in Oklahoma, which is where you're from. Mm-hmm. And so for anyone listening who never heard episode 17 or maybe who needs their memory refreshed, Natalia, how would you describe the state of Oklahoma if you were to pick a couple of adjectives what jumps to your mind first oh gosh um it's well i want to start with that it's very very republican there it's a bible belt Mm -hmm. state and that um sort of like independent attitude kind of affects everyone there like they're all about like hard work and you should grow up and have a family and kind of live in this um it's very conservative live this like very kind of conservative lifestyle i mean obviously there are people who don't do that but i would say the majority of people are like christian people who play golf i call them i call them christians who play golf (laughs) yeah (laughs) and they're very nice people they're very nice people but yeah that's that's the majority of them i would say Right. So I so you would say maybe one of the adjectives to describe people is conservative or religious. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. And then I also remember you saying during the Jameson episode that despite that sort of overarching um, religious aspect of life in Oklahoma, there's also some issues with poverty and drugs. Is that true? 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's a huge meth problem there. Um, I think when you for, first of all, it's a state that has like a huge um, indigenous population there and a lot of Native American history there. Uh, Oklahoma literally means red man. So I think that anytime you have sort of those two um, types of people coming in, like people who are moving to the state because it's cheap and you can have a pretty good life and raise a family there. And then people who have been there their whole lives because like the government has like forced them into this small little bubble. I think there's going to be like a huge disparity between wealth. And when we see in areas that are uh, riddled with poverty, there's usually a drug problem as well. Yes, that was, wow, that was perfect, Natalia. I could not have said that any better myself. So that that was absolutely perfect. This story that I'm going to tell you today, much like the Jameson family story, also takes place in Oklahoma. Oh, gosh. So, Natalia, have you ever heard of the town of Anadarko, Oklahoma? I have, yeah, Anadarko. There's a huge oil thing. Like, there's a, a bunch of oil stuff also, I should say, in Oklahoma. There's oil money there. That's part of the reason why families want to move there to raise their children because you can work for one of these oil companies and make a lot of money in a place where it doesn't cost much to live. So the quality of life is really good. And Anadarko is one of those places where there's a lot of oil um, business going on. Okay. See, this is why I'm so glad anytime a topic has Oklahoma (laughs) in it, I'm like, all right, I need to pick this because Natalia is going to be the perfect person to bounce these ideas off of. Yeah. So Like you said, Natalia, Anadarko is a very small town located along the Washita River about 50 miles south of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. in the county of Caddo. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, the population of Anadarko was listed as 6,660 people with a poverty rate. uh, Yes. Wait, 666? 6660, yes. Uh, Baba Yaga's legs. Yeah, yeah. What the fuck? Okay. Yeah, that is a very haunted population. 6,660 people. And like you said, Natalia, um, there is a lot of poverty throughout places like Oklahoma. There's a big disparity between the haves and the have-nots. People who perhaps work in well-paying jobs, like you mentioned, um, in areas that it's cheap to live, which is great. And then there's also uh, people who... Like you mentioned, um, a lot of times the Native American population, just because of the way our government forced people into certain reservations or certain towns, um, are struggling with poverty. So the poverty Mm -hmm. rate of Anadarko is 29.7%. Wow. It's just very, very high. Um, And according to datausa.io, the ethnic makeup of Anadarko's population today is as follows. 42% non-Hispanic American Indian, 30.3% non-Hispanic white, 9.27% non-Hispanic mixed race, 5.43% black or African American, and 3.84% Hispanic. Hmm. So, I mean, something that jumps out to me as someone who was born and raised in California is that that is a very, very high percentage of Native American population, right? Like 42%. They are the majority in that town. Yeah. And so that's something that like immediately jumps out to me. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the history of Anadarko before we get into today's story. According to Wikipedia, Anadarko got its name when its post office was established in 1873 
It was actually supposed to be named Nadarko after the Nadarko or Nadako, depending on which English spelling you go by, um, Native American tribe that lived there. But due to a clerical error, an A was added to the beginning of the name. And there's actually a joke that says when the town was being named, someone suggested that it should be named after a Nadarko um, Native American. And someone interpreted that literally and named the town Anadarko. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. What yeah. A cool tidbit. Yes. And in 1901, the federal government allotted the lands of the. Can you help me with the pronunciation of some of these mm-hmm. tribes? Is it Kiowa or Kiowa? Kiowa. Okay. In 1901, the federal government allotted the lands of the Kiowa, Comanche, and Arapaho reservations and opened the surplus land to white settlement so like you were saying natalia um in the early 1900s in this town it was 1901 the federal government came through this part of oklahoma and was like i know you've been living on this land your entire existence but we're gonna push you into these little um settlements or reservations and then the rest of this land we're gonna open up to auction for white settlers to buy Mm mm-hmm Okay, so on August 6, 1901, an auction was held for homesteads and town lots, and about 5,000 people were living in Ragtown on the east edge of Anadarko awaiting auction. Natalia, what do you think a Ragtown is? <laughs> well, it kind of sounds fun if you think about it. Um, I, I'm guessing it's like a shanty town. I'm assuming like when you think of a rag, it's like a slightly less than towel and a towel's already like doesn't have any rights and doesn't have much say in anything so (laughs) um i don't think it was i think it was a population of probably maybe poor people i'm gonna say so or like a fake town i don't know yes it's a fake town that's what it is so ragtown was a temporary settlement of shanty homes set up on the edge of anadarko that were exclusively occupied by mostly white men who wanted to buy land so they were waiting for the government to hold that auction right they're like camping out sort of yes they had all like set up tents and shanty homes um on the edge of anadarko and they were like chomping at the bit waiting for the government to say okay we're going to start auctioning off plots of land now my question for you natalia is does that sound haunted to you because for some reason this concept is very haunted to me yeah that's frankly scares me just thinking about a town of like hungry people waiting (laughs) waiting for their homes to be offered to them so they can buy them I don't know it sounds just like everyone in that town would just be full of angry energy yeah camping's not fun no one likes camping (laughs) (laughs) and you've been camping there for months just waiting for the opportunity to buy something. Okay, so as soon as the federal government opened up the auction for land within the town, around 20,000 people were present just for auction day. So this was a very popular area. I mean, in the early 1900s, 20,000 people is a lot of people to just be living in shanty towns and then traveling there, hoping for the chance to buy a plot of land. So this was very, very popular. But actually, for unknown reasons, just six years later, Anadarko's population dwindled from 20,000 to just 2,190. Why? There's So there's nothing I could find that mentioned why. All we know is that the population dropped in just mm. six years. I mean, that is wow. an insane drop. 
Yeah. And as I mentioned, there are almost, there are about 6,660 people living within Anadarko currently. And the poverty rate amongst those who live there is just under 30%. And for comparison, for people who maybe don't live in the U.S., the average poverty rate in the United States as a whole is around 10.5%. So we're talking about a very, very poor area of the country. Mm. And... Interestingly, despite Anadarko not being the richest of cities, they do have quite a few notable attractions. Um, It is the self-proclaimed, quote, Indian capital of the nation because it's one of the few cities in the U.S. where Native Americans make up the majority of the population, which I talked about. Mm -hmm. And the Southern Plains Indian Museum is also located there, which showcases the arts, crafts, clothes, and weaponry of several tribes, including the Kiowa, Comanche, Kiowa Apache, Southern Cheyenne, Southern Arapaho, Wichita, Caddo, and Delaware tribes. And the town is also known for the annual Kiowa Black Leggings Warrior Society ceremonial in the summer. Natalia, have you ever heard of this? Uh, Kiowa Black Leggings Ceremony? Mm-hmm. No, but I'm assuming it's one because they have this thing called Red Earth in Oklahoma, which is where a bunch of different pri- tribes come together in like an arena based setting and they do their tribal dances and um, sell like, you know, different handmade goods and things like that to just people who want to see the culture. So I'm assuming maybe it's one of those like ceremonies where they put on all of their traditional gear and dance in yes, some sort of celebration correct. or honoring it's like some sort of tradition yes absolutely so that's exactly what it is i watched a video on youtube of it it was super fascinating um very beautiful it's all of these members of the kiowa tribe getting dressed up in ceremonial gear um and it, interestingly i mean so this takes place in anadarko there were for me for someone who's not from Oklahoma, I thought it was cool that you could definitely see lots of different people interested in this. There were white Mm -hmm. people, there were Hispanic people, there was all Mm -hmm. sorts of people represented watching this ceremony. And so I thought that was really interesting for someone like me who knows nothing about Oklahoma. Right. And Anadarko is also home to the National Hall of Fame for Famous American Indians, the McKees Indian Store, and the Anadarko Heritage Museum. And even the post office in town is a special place that holds 16 murals painted by Stephen Mopope, a Kiowa painter, dancer, and Native American flute player. So, Natalia, Mm -hmm. after hearing all of this information, how would you describe the town of Anadarko? Well, I, you know, like you said, it sounds like it's the Native American population of the, or not Native American population, but it sounds like it's the Native American capital of the world, maybe? <laughs> I don't, I'm not really sure. It sounds like there's a, it's a sort of like heavy Native American influence town. That's what it yes. sounds like to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's definitely majority Native American population and the culture of the specific tribes that are native to that area is celebrated and incorporated into the culture, the art, the museums of the town. And like I said earlier, and you just mentioned right now, they are the self-proclaimed Indian capital of the nation. So Mm -hmm. they call themselves that. They say, hey, if you want to learn about um, Native American culture and arts and traditions and you want to come to a place that is a town that is majority Native American population, you come to Anadarko. That's how they advertise themselves. Very cool. 
Yes. So at the beginning of this episode, when I asked you to describe Oklahoma as a whole, according to your experience as a native of Oklahoma, um, one of the adjectives you gave me to describe the type of culture in Oklahoma was the word religious, correct? Right. Very religious, I would say. Very religious, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, today's story is about a pastor who spread the gospel at her church in Anadarko, Oklahoma. Hmm. And her, her name was Pastor Carol Faye Daniels. So let me tell you a little bit about Carol. Carol was born to Theopolis and, Char- and Charles Etta Dunlap on October 26, 1947, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. She was the second of four children. Carol graduated from Douglas High School in 1965 and went on to attend college in Dallas, Texas. She later transferred to Central State University in Edmond, Oklahoma, which you actually mm-hmm. just talked about, Natalia. Yeah graduating in 1971 with a BA degree in chemistry and biology, and she was an active member of her sorority Zeta Phi Beta. On June 25, 1971, she married Alvin L. Daniels Jr., and they moved to Spokane, Washington. And in 1978, the family moved back to Oklahoma with their five children. And Carol often said that she believed in the power of education. She was working toward a master's degree in health administration and had already received an associate degree in health technology. And this is in addition to that chemistry degree I mentioned that she Mm -hmm. um, graduated with. And in 1990, Carol was ordained into ministry by Christ Holy Sanctified Churches. She was a member of the Holy Temple Church in Oklahoma City until she was appointed pastor of Worthy Temple in Anadarko in 2001. So, mm-hmm. Natalia, I'm going to send you a picture of Pastor Daniels, and I want you to describe her to our audio listeners out there. You know, this is interesting for me because I've never been to a church that had a female pastor. So I don't know if that's rare or or not, but that's a very interesting thing for me. No, that's a good point. Um, I, I was raised Lutheran and we had male pastors. I know that women are allowed to become pastors, but we um, never had one. And so I think you're right. I think that maybe this speaks to the kind of determination that this woman had. She was going into a male-dominated field, undeterred, extremely educated. Right. All right. Yeah, I see her. Okay, she's got that, like, collar with the white thing on her. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's a, a pastor, I guess. Um, yeah, she's... She looks like a pastor. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. She looks like a pastor. And how would you describe her um, in terms of her biography that I just read to you? What what sort of adjectives would you use to describe Ms. Daniels? Yeah. She sounds educated. She sounds respectable. She sounds like someone who is kind of like a type A, like goes after what she wants. She was involved in her sorority. She um, went to get higher education at a time that not many women were doing that she yeah she sounds like not only did she get higher education she went all the way to Dallas to do it so it sounds like it was important to her so yeah I would say she sounds like a good role model right yeah definitely and and also I just want to reiterate what you said about her being a woman pastor is that that is not super common I mean she is a 
woman in a traditionally male profession. You can have female pastors. Um, It's not that you can't have them. It's just that they're uncommon. Like you said, you've personally never seen one at my church growing up. We never had one. Um, And also on top of that, she is a black woman. And so Mm -hmm. she's going to the town of Anadarko to be a pastor there in a town that has um, a very small population of black Americans. And Mm -hmm. also she is a woman in a male dominated field. Right. Okay. So Slay. So our story takes place on August 23rd, 2009. In recent years leading up to this day, Pastor Carol Daniels had dedicated her weekends to driving around the state of Oklahoma as a traveling pastor, preaching to those who, in her view, had been marginalized by society. She hoped to bring them peace through the teachings of Jesus Christ. On this particular day, a Sunday, Reverend Daniels was making a drive that she had made many Sundays before. It was a 60-mile trip from her home in Oklahoma City that would take over two hours round trip to complete, but Carol didn't mind the long drive. She felt that God had called her to minister to the lost souls of Anadarko, Oklahoma. Hmm. The church she ministered at was called Christ Holy Sanctified Church, and it was located at 305 East 1st Street. It was an old, run-down building that used to be a grocery store. Sitting on the edge of a predominantly black neighborhood, the church at one time served as a place of worship to many parishioners. In recent years, however, Christ Holy Sanctified no longer had a congregation due to the town's high rate of poverty, crime, and drug-related issues. While some pastors might balk at the idea of preaching in such a town, Carol was undeterred. Despite the town's issues, Ms. Daniels was there every Sunday, eager to serve and hopeful to save. The church was part of a national organization of the same name. Pastor Craig Brown, the Christ Holy Sanctified Church Vice President, said that the organization had asked Carol to grow the church's dwindling congregation in Anadarko through ministering to its citizens and encouraging them to attend her Sunday service. And Carol was up for the challenge. She felt that it was her duty to let everyone know that no matter the hand they were dealt in life, they mattered. Mm-hmm. Natalia, how do you feel about Carol after hearing this, some more information about what she was up against in, in this town? She sounds very passionate and she sounds like she's driven. And, you know, when you're selecting a, pa- a pastor, you having so- like, obviously, you know, let me see. Let me think of the right way to say this. It sounds like she's really passionate about what she's doing. Like she's not in it for the money because there are tons of these huge churches in Oklahoma where pastors make multiple millions of dollars a year because they have like these huge congregations. She instead is called to an area that's has a lot of poverty, so there's not really a big chance of her ever becoming uh like monetarily successful there. But she's determined to grow this congregation in a town where it sounds like the people need it, you know? Like it, the people are riddled by poverty and um drugs and they're lost and it sounds like sh- that's what's drawn her there even though it's not going to be easy, you know? It sounds right, like she's exactly. just really passionate about what she does. Totally. And I know we have a lot of listeners that are not super stoked on religion. And I just ask, like, this this episode, I just want to make it clear, is not a commentary on religion. It's just a commentary on what is going on in this story and the background of this woman. And I just wanted to say that really quickly. So uh, on the 
On the particular Sunday that our story takes place, Carol departed her home a little before 9 a.m. and arrived at the church a little bit before 10 a.m. Her normal routine upon arriving to the church would have been to open up the doors and set herself up behind the pulpit should anyone wander in for a sermon that day. So, Natalia, I'm going to send you a picture of what this church looks like, and I want you to describe it to our listeners. Yeah, this is a piece of shit church. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's Um, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I say that as a joke because it's it's very very modest let's say i don't want to say it's a piece of shit church because i'm sure you know this is not it's good to have a roof over your head and all of that but (laughs) it's very very modest it looks very kind of run down it looks like just you know a tornado would take it out pretty quickly it's um yeah they don't what i'm looking at physically looks like maybe a two-story house with boarded up windows and it's all painted white stucco and then there's just a cross on the top of it that's like made with wood and the reason that I say that this is modest is because in my experience churches like people donate to the church you give tithe or you do whatever and then they use that to make the church nicer so like when you drive by a church usually the people who go to that church um have paid for landscaping or you know some nice little area for people to sit outside or whatever it is this you can tell that this church is located in an area where people don't have much to give right yeah and and like i said this this building that the church is in or the building that has been converted into a church it used to be a grocery store so it's very very looks haunted that's what I want to say about this. Like, if I walked by this place, I would be like, there's no fucking way I'm going in there. Maybe right. <laughs> that's why there's no one who goes in that church. Because they're like, oh, that big white, like, trap with a giant cross on the front. Like, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's, I'm not going in there. Right. It does not look like a place that you would see and be like, oh, I want to go in there and check it out. Like, it's it has, at least for me, who someone who's not, like, super religious. Like, I don't go to church every Sunday. Um, I... I like when I go, sometimes I do go to Catholic church, even though I'm not Catholic and I go to it because I'm like, this is interesting. You know what I mean? Like to me, like all of the different statues. Yeah. All of (laughs) the different, um, like mosaics and art. Like to me, that's very interesting. The area where you put the candles to pray, like I wasn't raised Catholic. So I occasionally go to Catholic mass because I just find it very interesting. Now this church has none of that stuff, right? So I wouldn't necessarily want to walk in and see what it's about because there's not much to look at. Right. Right. Okay. So like I said, her normal routine on this Sunday would have been to arrive at the church a little bit before 10 a.m., open up the doors, and because there's no congregation, she would just sit there all day waiting for someone to wander in. And when they wandered in, she would talk to them about their life, talk to them about what they were hoping to get out of coming to church that day. She would pray with them individually, or if there were uh, a few people in the in the um in the church, she might give a sermon. So to her, it wasn't really important how many people were there. And some days she might not get anybody coming into church. So she was, like you said, she, she had no aspirations of becoming a pastor of a mega church, right? Which is what you yeah. were talking about. Like she right. didn't think she was ever going to become a millionaire from this. She was just there to see if she could help. Right. Um, okay. So however... Around 11.40 a.m., when retired Bishop Silky Wilson Jr. and his wife came to the front doors of the church, as they sometimes did on Sundays to say hello to Carol, 
the doors to the church were closed. Though it was odd to see the doors of the church closed, they thought that perhaps the wind had blown them shut, or perhaps Carol had simply shut them for some other reason. They reached for the knob and tried to pull the door open, but it was locked. This was extremely unusual. Bishop Silky looked in the church parking lot to make sure that Carol's car was there. It was. Worried, he and his wife knocked on the church doors, hoping that Carol would come open up for them, laughing, and explain that she had locked the doors for some innocent, innocuous reason. But Carol never came. They stuck their ears to the door. They heard nothing. We banged on the doors, Silky would later say. I tapped on the door with my cane. We couldn't get no attention. Nobody would come to the door. Uneasy, Bishop Silky immediately started knocking on all of the windows of the church, frantically hoping that there was a simple explanation for Carol's absence. As the minutes ticked by and still no one came to the door, Bishop Silky and his wife walked to the nearby police station, which was located just a block south of the church. On duty that day in the police station was Officer Ashley Burris, a 31-year-old man who was born and raised in Anadarko. Ashley walked back to the church with Bishop Silky and the bishop's wife. Ashley first checked the front door and confirmed that it was indeed locked. He decided to walk around to the back of the building where he knew another door was located and found that the back door was unlocked. As he opened the door, he began calling for Carol, saying, Reverend Daniels, are you in here? No response. Mrs. Daniels, he called again. Still no response. As he stepped through the back door, he found himself face to face with Pastor Carol Daniels. Immediately, he reached for his police radio and called for help from the detective on duty, Detective James Howard. The inflection in his voice, I could tell he needed another officer down there pretty quickly. So even though I didn't know what was going on, I knew something was wrong, said Detective Howard. Howard immediately gathered up his gun and ran down to the church where he found Officer Ashley leaning against a wall, looking as though he might pass out at any minute. Looking past Ashley, Detective Howard was met with a haunting discovery. There, behind the pastor's pulpit, was the brutalized corpse of Pastor Carol Daniels. Ms. Daniels' body had been stabbed so many times that her head was nearly decapitated only hanging on by a thin strip of flesh. An autopsy would later state that Carol's body had, quote, gaping incised wounds across the larynx, extending lateral and toward the back of the neck. Blood pooled under Carol's body, which had been stripped nude. Her left breast had nearly been severed from her body, though it was unclear if this was intentional or simply a product of being stabbed so many times in the chest. An autopsy would later show that the trauma to her breast had most likely been inflicted after she was already dead. But the killers didn't stop there. It was also clear that her hair had been set on fire. She only had about four inches of singed hair left, and sections of her charred scalp were still warm to the touch. Her body had been doused with cleaning solution, and both her clothes and the murder weapon were nowhere to be found. But perhaps most grisly of all, her body had been intentionally laid out and posed in the shape of Jesus on the crucifix. What the f- f- Ugh. I'm f- so upset by that. 
this woman is just trying to help. She's not doing anything wrong, you know? And then someone comes into her place of work and does that to her, you know? It's right. And Detective Howard said, you know, in your mind, you think, how could anyone do this to another person, much Mm -hmm. less someone who is down there serving God? So, you know, regardless of how you feel about religion, it sounds like Pastor Daniels wasn't, you know, trying to push anything on anyone. She was just going down there every Sunday for not much pay, opening up the doors and seeing if anyone would walk in. You know, she wasn't like Like it's their choice to walk in. Exactly. She's not outside harassing people. Totally. She's not like one of those people standing on a street corner screaming, you're going to hell unless you go to church. You know, she's just going down there every Sunday, opening up the doors of this church that has been there for years. And if anyone walks in, she'll pray with them. She'll talk to them about their problems. And if enough people come, she'll give a small sermon. Mm. So, Natalia, what are your thoughts on the way that the pastor's body was discovered? I don't... It sounds like someone... I mean, violence is a mark of lack of intelligence like you always hear that like people who resort to violence do that because their intellect like they don't rely on it you know so i'm i feel like this is probably some sort of hate crime due to because she is a pastor maybe because she's a black female also not sure you know but it seems like it's sort of motivated by like this hatred towards her like it sounds it's not like they just stabbed her let her bleed out and die of her wounds like they made it a point to try and really like humiliate her, you know, absolutely and make, it, make it really, really um, painful for her. And then they I don't know with the cleaning solution, maybe they were thinking they were going to set her whole body on fire. Maybe they thought once they set the hair on fire that the whole body would burn up. So then there would be no evidence, um, but it didn't work out that way. Maybe they were thinking the whole church would burn down. I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah, that's just so many, so many questions about it. I don't know. Right. It's really sad. You set up this whole thing of this woman who I was really rooting for. And now I'm like, that's why people don't want to do anything nice for communities where the where it's a high crime rate or where there's a lot of poverty and there's a drug problem. It's like you see an area that had that needs help. And yet you're afraid to go do anything about it because there's some people there that can hurt you, you know? Right. Yeah, it's it's horrific. And, you know, to your point, Car- it sounds like Carol took a job that none of her colleagues would take. You know, mm-hmm. like I said at the beginning, a lot of people said, oh, I don't want to go to Anadarko. There's too much crime and poverty there. But she had expressed to people, hey, I want people to know that just because you've been dealt a shitty hand, you know, just because you happen to have grown up or live in a town that has a lot of crime and a lot of poverty, like I understand that there are good people living in this community that are victims of their circumstances. And if they need me, I'm going to be there. Yeah. So this, this is horrific, right? Like you said, this is not just a simple, like, oh, I'm, I stab some, I mean, of course any murder is terrible, but it's not just a a question of, oh, I'm going to go stab this person and rob them. Right. Like this seems barbaric. It seems barbaric. Motivated by hate. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and nonsensical. Like, what is the mm-hmm. reason? She doesn't have money. The church doesn't mm-hmm. have money. What would be the possible motive to kill her? And so the Anadarko Police Department, which obviously is very, very small, um, recognized that this murder was something beyond their capabilities. I mean, they were used to gang violence. They were used to drug um, deaths, drug-related deaths, but they had never seen something like this before. Mm-hmm. And so they reached out to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, or the OBI, and the OSBI was called in to take the lead on the case. And Natalia, um, for maybe people who aren't from the U.S. or aren't from Oklahoma, do you want to describe what the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation is? Um, That would be like a state-appointed sort of investigation. Um, It would be like the FBI, but just for Oklahoma. So. Yeah, like a full of private investigators and um, detectives and people who have more access to finding out information than just like your typical, like they have more resources than the typical just police force. Right. Yeah. So in the U.S., we have the FBI, which is a federal organization, and they're like the big guns, right? Like if your small local police department is in over their head with some time of some type of crime a lot of the times the fbi will get involved and they have access Mm -hmm. to every kind of technology you can think of but some states also have their own division of the fbi basically so like georgia has the georgia bureau of investigation and oklahoma is one of those states that has their own bureau of investigation so like you said natalia this is sort of the step above your local police station if Mm -hmm. the police are in over their heads they're going to go to the bureau of investigation and in this case it was oklahoma state bureau of investigation so Through the investigation into the murder, it was determined that the killer had left no DNA evidence and no fingerprints anywhere on the scene. It seemed almost like a professional hit, but nothing in Carol's personal life would call for her assassination. The fact that the killer had the forethought to bring cleaning solution to dump over the body and wash away any evidence meant that this was most likely a premeditated crime and not something that had occurred in the heat of the moment. The detectives scoured the surrounding buildings for any evidence and came across one surveillance video that seems to show a figure dressed all in white leaving the church that morning shortly after Carol would have died. So Natalia, I'm going to send you this surveillance video. There's sound, but don't put the sound on because it's just a reporter talking over it. Um, But I'd love you to describe this video to our audience. Okay. So it's only a couple seconds long. I know it's grainy, but I want you to describe it. Um, So it looks like a gas station a block away from the church. Oh, yeah, there's someone. There's like a tiny white little speck running, sprinting across the street. Wow, the fact that they caught this shows you how, wow, yeah okay so this i just want to point out that this security camera is taken from a gas station that's probably like i want to say three like three blocks away from the actual church or like three buildings down from the actual church and then it's like obviously really grainy and there's this tiny little white speck in the background moving and it's so it's just so blended into the background that whoever made this video literally highlighted it so that you could see it but that just makes me happy that at least they found that evidence because i think the average person would look through that and be like oh i there's nothing here you know right so so like you said natalia that video is very grainy we're not really sure what's going on in it but the 
Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation had the technology to be able to determine to determine that that white speck in the background was coming from the church. And right. so they highlighted it so that you can see this little white speck running or at least walking very quickly away from the church. Right. And we're going to post all of these pictures and videos to our Instagram account at Let's Get Haunted so that you can follow along with us as you listen to this episode. So the next clue that the police get comes from the people living in the house next door to the church. So, Natalia, in that picture of the church that I sent you, yeah. um, I don't know if you can tell, but on the left side of that photo, there's a house literally probably four feet away. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I see it. So, I mean, if something had happened... It looks like the church and this house share, like, uh, a, a yard, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, do you think... I mean, if something happened inside that church, that person should have been able to hear it, right? Right. Like, if she was screaming, you would have been able to hear it, for sure, because those walls can't be very thick. That doesn't look like a very soundproof building. Exactly. So... From the pictures, you can see that the house is maybe like four feet away from the church. The walls look thin. These are not well-built buildings. Um, mm-hmm. it, it makes it extremely unlikely that the people living in the house wouldn't have heard something, especially since Carol's murder was so brutal. To your point, um, she didn't die right away. So they must have heard her screaming as she was being stabbed. And the owner of that house comes forward and tells the police that she was not home at the time of Carol's murder, but after the murder, she had gone down into her cellar and noticed that it had been broken into. In fact, it looked as though someone had been living there without her knowledge or permission. And oh my God, this seemed like a promising lead, right? Like, okay, something is wrong so close to where the church is. And so the police went into this woman's cellar to see if they could collect any evidence. But once inside, they they say that they determined that this lead was a dead end. And we don't really know why they determined that. But they say, hey, nothing here is of interest. This break in is unrelated to the church. Man, that just shows you how that town has, like, so much crime going on. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of crime, and and not all crime is is related to each other. So there's a lot of different people committing different crimes, and that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they were involved in the murder because they broke into the cellar. And so another next, the next clue that the police receive is another witness. Another witness comes forward And he is described as a, quote, local drifter who was living across the street from the church in an old car wash at the time. And according to an article written by Dave Jordan of News 9, this man's last name was Richardson. And he claimed that he actually saw the murderer running from the church that morning. So he's located in this kind of old car wash and he's just been sleeping there. And so to your point, this kind of mm-hmm. tells us a lot about the town. Like in some towns, right. they like the police will come and say, hey, like move along. Right. Like, yeah. but in this town, they're accepting that there are drifters. In this and- town. Right. Well, and also in this town, they're like, hey, this guy might know about this murder that happened across the street. Exactly. Like, nothing could be make me feel less safe about an area than if like imagine you're like touring a, an apartment or something thinking about buying and you're like 
what's the deal with this woman next door? And they're like, oh, yeah, she's super nice. Uh, there was someone living in her cellar for a while she didn't know about, but it turned out to be a dead end. So I don't worry about that. And then you're like, oh, OK, what's the deal with this Mr. Richardson across the street that like sleeps over there? Is he cool? And they're like, yeah, he's super cool. He helped us solve a murder. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. So this guy, Mr. Richardson, um, he is interviewed by police. He actually goes into police and says, hey, I saw the murderer running from the church that morning. And he says, quote, this guy was coming out. He was covered in blood and he had a ski mask on. He had a knife in his hand and he was dripping blood. A friend of mine said Pastor Daniels got killed and that just hurt me to my heart. That was my pastor, Richardson said. Mm. Richardson said he didn't immediately go to police right away because he was drinking at the time he saw the man and he didn't want police to question his credibility. Quote, I was drinking a beer, okay, a hurricane, and I didn't want them to smell that on my breath. However, Richardson said he eventually went to police and investigators questioned him. Quote, that was getting me down and making me nervous, you know. They were making me seem like I'd done it, and I said, no, 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 I'm not a killer. Richardson is believed to be homeless and living behind a car wash. Neighbors said he makes a living doing odd jobs around Anadarko, and Richardson maintains that he's telling the truth. However, there are contradictions in Richardson's story. In a published report, he said that the blood-soaked suspect was black and bald-headed, but he told News 9 that he was wearing a ski mask. Richardson mm -hmm. said, if anyone doesn't want to believe me or not, they can just go on about their business. So, unfortunately, this this guy, it seems like he's really trying to help, right? Like he said, you know, that was my pastor. I loved Pastor Daniels. But he's also giving conflicting stories. And he mm -hmm. was drunk at the time of the murder. So, police are saying, okay, right. they're kind of taking it with a grain of salt, right? Like, he's given a couple different stories First, the guy was black and bald. Next, he couldn't tell what the race was, and he was wearing a ski mask. So right. the police kind of start looking at Richardson, and they're like, okay, well, maybe he may have done this. Right. Well, that doesn't sound very likely either, that a murderer would put so much effort into concealing their identity in terms of cleaning their fingerprints and cleaning the body and the scene of any evidence and then they're just going to run out of it wearing a ski mask and holding a knife right and in that surveillance seems not yeah it seems not likely yeah and in that surveillance yeah. footage we saw the person's wearing all white i don't see a black ski mask in that do you i mean i don't know because they're definitely wearing all white and so if he's saying they're dripping in blood i also don't think they would do that they probably would have like had another pair of clothes to wash afterwards or to get into you know yeah because it's someone running down the street dripping blood in the middle of the day you think a lot of people would have seen that right yeah yeah like the bureau of investigation says it seems like a hit like it seemed almost professional and premeditated so yeah i don't think that would make sense i think richardson might want to just like be involved you know because it's his pastor so he's feeling like oh yeah i definitely saw someone running and then you know he was kind of drunk at the time so i don't know things seem different when you're drunk for sure yeah definitely and especially like depending on how drunk you are i mean think of the think of the drunkest you've ever been it and it sounds like this guy was kind of on a bender right like multiple days yeah in a row of i'm gonna look up what a hurricane is hurricane alcohol 
What is that? It's so, oh my God, it's so alcoholic. It's almost like a, you know, in California, we have adios, motherfuckers, AMFs. Like the South has hurricanes. Right. So it looks like a can of something. It just looks like a can of beer, but it says hurricane on it. And yeah, maybe it's like a four loco. Maybe it's like just intense. Oh, there's two kinds of rum in it. White rum and dark rum. It's really potent. That's what it says. Okay. Yeah, it's super potent. And I have I have cousins that live in uh, Louisiana. And I remember visiting them once after I turned 21 and drinking one hurricane. And I, uh-huh. like, granted, I am not a great drinker. Like, I'm kind of a lightweight. But <laughs> I was, like, but gone. Like, I was, like, blacked right. out. So if this guy had been having multiple hurricanes multiple days in a row, I'm, you know, the police are just kind of thinking like, maybe there's more to the story here, or maybe he was the person that did it. So they decide they're, yeah. they're going to search the car wash and they end up finding a knife that has been hidden down one of the drains on the car wash property. But forensic testing determined that this knife was not the one used in the murder. Okay. Okay. So, a few days, interestingly, so the plot thickens, a few days after his interview with News 9, Mr. Richardson died of a drug overdose. God, this town is just, like, fucked up. It, yeah, there's, like, there's a knife that's been hidden down a drain, so it's probably been used in a crime, but it hasn't, it wasn't used in that crime that they're looking in into. this crime. Yeah. Yeah, and then their witness overdoses on drugs. Right. Wow, this is just, like... Sad. It's super sad. Too. There's a lot. There's a lot happening. So the thing is, you can tell from that surveillance footage that I showed you that there are a lot of people out and about on the street that morning, right? And yeah, and the police, definitely. the police actually like they look at this footage and they're able to locate some of the people who show up in that surveillance footage. But the one thing that everyone has in common is is they tell the police, hey, we've heard rumors about two people being involved in this murder. And we have heard rumors about who those two people were. But these are dangerous drug dealers. And so we don't want to talk to you about it. We don't want to be witnesses. We don't want to tell you what we've heard. We don't want to be involved at all. Oh, wow. So it's like gang related, they're saying? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it sounds like some sort of organized crime, right? If these two people are well-known drug dealers to the point where everyone knows their names, but they haven't been arrested, yeah. it sounds like maybe these people have like have have threatened people or are so notorious that the townsfolk just like don't want anything to do with it. Right. So, as a result, the case goes cold. Then in 2012, something unthinkable happened. Officer Ashley Burris, the man who found Reverend Daniel's mutilated body in 2009, walked into the Anadarko police station. It was 2.30 a.m. on a Wednesday. Burris was off duty. He calmly walked into the police lobby and sat down in a chair. Then he pulled out his handgun and shot himself once in the chest. Burris died shortly thereafter. So now not only do we... So did he do it? According to the investigation into Burris's death, the officer had been experiencing some marital issues that he was trying to work through. However, according to people who knew Burris personally, the officer was always haunted by what he had seen in the church that morning. He told friends and family that the image of Carol's mutilated body would forever haunt him, and he often had nightmares about the case. So... 
he didn't kill her. What happened was he had severe PTSD from how bad Mm -hmm. that crime scene was. It stuck with him forever. And he ended up killing himself. So now not only do we have the death of a possible first witness, Mr. Richardson, but we also Mm -hmm. have the death of the police officer who found Carol that morning. This is haunted. It's very haunted. So no further updates on the case would come for several more years. Finally, in 2015, an unnamed woman came forward with another clue. According to a quote from the district attorney on the case, Jason Hicks, quote, she actually witnessed the suspect with a black blouse and a knife that had blood on it. And it was around the time of Pastor Daniel's murder. Hicks says the woman led him to a shed located behind a home in Anadarko. Quote, she also advised that those items were taken into the shed and burned. But not only did a search come up empty, he says, that woman, their only witness, passed away days later from a drug overdose. What? That's insane, right? Yeah. So. I wonder if it's on purpose. Like, are these people... I don't know. It's it's just insane that the first person who claims to have witnessed it, Mr. Richardson, he comes forward. Yeah. A couple days later, dies of a drug overdose. Ashley Burris, the officer who was the, you know, the witness to immediately after the murder, like he came in and saw what everything looked like right after the murder. He ends up dying by suicide. Then this next witness who's brave enough to come forward, comes forward with this information. And then a couple days later dies of a drug overdose. I mean, if if the rumor in town is that the murderers are notorious drug dealers involved in organized crime, it seems very interesting that the only witnesses to the case are are dropping like flies, right? They're dying of drug overdoses right. after coming forward. And uh, Hicks, the district attorney on the case, says, quote, it seems like every time we take a step forward, we are taking two steps back. Through this woman's anonymous tip, it was determined that one of the suspects in the case was Denise K. Cooper, who went by the nickname Darnell. Denise was a known drug dealer who was in and out of prison for methamphetamine distribution and had a criminal history that included assault and battery. Natalia, I'm going to send you a picture of, of Denise and also a picture of her criminal record, which is public information. Okay. Okay. Why would they want to kill the pastor, though? Maybe the pastor was, like, telling one of their distributors, like, hey, you know, you, you can come to God. Like, he'll forgive you for all of your past. You don't need to live this life anymore. Like, you can be an honest person. I don't know. And then they're... Okay. So I'm looking at Darnell. And she's smiling in her mugshot, which is always a bad sign. Yeah. <laughs> um her criminal history yeah it says distribution possess wait distribution of cds slash possession with intent to sell like eight times or something one two three four five six six counts of possession of something with distribution with a intent to sell so she's a drug dealer for sure and then her last two counts were assault and or battery with a dangerous weapon So, yeah, I mean, she would be a good suspect for sure. Right. So this woman who whose mugshot you just said she's smiling in it, um, 
if you open it, you can see, so just to describe her a little bit, she has kind of grayish hair. Her hair goes to yeah, her she's shoulders. Got, she's, yeah, she's got like a mullet. She has a mullet, I would say. And the top of her hair is gray and the bottom of her hair is like darker. So either she hadn't dyed her hair in a long time and her grays grew in or her she was recently gray and the gray was starting to grow in. I don't know. Right. And if you look at her... Um, appearance and identifiers which appear on the um, Oklahoma inmate description it shows her uh-huh. as a female about five foot six R- her race is American Indian she weighs 161 pounds hair color black but like you said now it's graying her eye color is brown and she has a couple aliases she goes by Darnell Cooper Denise S Cooper and Denise D Cooper Okay, so yeah, so like I said earlier, there had always been rumors about who the people were that murdered Reverend Daniels, but people were too scared to speak up and probably for good reason, because it seems like anyone who does speak up is dying. So um, like I said, we've got now three people who have died um, that are related to this case. The female witness who died of a drug overdose and said, oh, I saw this woman wearing a blouse, carrying a bloody knife, and she burned all of this stuff, like all these clothes and stuff in a shed. Um, Her tip was very important because she actually did name names before she died. And those names were Denise Cooper, like I said. And according to some sources, it's, it's sort of unclear. She had a male accomplice, allegedly, who may have been named Kevin Mahan. And reports differ on whether or not Mahan was involved in the crime or whether he simply was a witness to the crime. But either way, when police try to get him in front of a grand jury, um, he refuses to talk. And Denise was a known drug dealer who was in and out of prison, like I said. Um, And the police begin to gather evidence against Denise um, in hopes of presenting a case to the grand jury. However, in 2017, Denise died of cancer before grand jurors could hear her testimony. So now the only person left who allegedly may be connected to the crime is this guy, Kevin Mahan, who um, was rumored to be her accomplice. And I'm saying allegedly on purpose because Kevin is still alive. But if you look online, you will see like these are the two names that keep popping up is Kevin Mahan and Denise slash Darnell. So district attorney Hicks ultimately was quoted as saying that the male suspect who, who allegedly is Mahan um, has been convicted for another crime and was in Lawton correctional facility at the time of the 2017 grand jury inquiry. He has a history of violent felony convictions in Caddo County And he has been free from the Oklahoma Department of Corrections custody since October of 2017. So, Natalia, I'm going to send you a picture of Kevin Mahan now. And I'm also going to send you his um, police reports or records. All right. All right. I'm looking at a picture of Kevin and he is male with a shaved head. Uh, looks like maybe he has like some scarring or something on his forehead. I'm not really sure if that's just the way his head is shaped or not. I don't know. Um, and then his like appearance and identifiers says he's a male American Indian, six foot, 169 pounds. Whoa. So he's pretty thin. Um, and oh yeah, I'm looking at his sentences and he's done a lot of time. Um, 
assault, two counts of assault and battery of a police officer, which is more intense than just assault and battery. Um, he has obstructing an officer. He has three counts of domestic abuse, another obstructing an officer. He has assault and battery of a police officer again, domestic abuse again, obstructing an officer again, false personification. Um, he has di- distribution of CDS slash possession with intent to sell. So that's drug related charge. He has an accessory charge and then um stolen property and stolen property so it sounds like yeah like this might be someone with gang history or something like people who do assault and battery are one kind of person but then someone who does assault and battery to a police officer or someone who just like doesn't care about going to jail right and especially with all of the domestic violence um charges like i have no sympathy for anyone who um assaults their their partner and the fact that he has so many of those kind of just indicates that he is he is um a violent person and yeah so that's really where the case's progress ends there have been no leads and no updates since 2017 and kevin mahan is currently still a free man so unless he talks it seems we won't know who did what or why exactly reverend daniels was murdered And D.A. Hicks told a newspaper that short of a confession or new evidence, the case will remain unsolved. So before we get into the theories, Natalia, and talk about what makes this an example of a case where the paranormal meets true crime, um, what are your general thoughts on all of the information I've told you so far? Like, is there anything that sticks out to you? Now that I know this guy is alive and you're telling the story about him and like if he did kill this person so brutally like what's to keep him from just like coming and killing us being like you were talking shit about me on your shitty podcast (laughs) right i guess that's That's true i'm thinking well i said allegedly he could like we don't know he could he was named as a person of interest so he could be a witness he could have yeah. received some information from Denise. He could. Well, that's true. He could be a witness. Yeah. He, it doesn't yeah. mean he necessarily did it. It just means that he has been named someone who is involved with um, the people who are hypothesized Suspects. to have done it. Yeah. yeah. And he has never been named a suspect. He's only ever been called a potential witness or person of interest. Here's my thought on this. Now, I am not an addict, but I do have a lot of experience um, learning about people who are addicts or are recovered drug addicts um, because I am involved with a group that's like heavily involved with AA. So I learn a lot about what it's like to be an addict and just like the different way that your life is. Because like my my I feel like relationship with drugs and alcohol is very recreational. Like I don't really drink or do any drugs anymore because I'm old and not about that life anymore. (laughs) But yeah, like it was it was never something that uh, was going to ruin my life. Like I could say like, oh, I have a responsibility coming up. I need to be sober for that. So like it wouldn't be hard for me to quit drinking you know, um, on Sunday night, knowing that I have to go to, or a Sunday afternoon, knowing that I have to go to work the next day or whatever. But it sounds like this town has a huge drug problem. And a lot of the witnesses sound like they are addicts, like they've been either died of a drug overdose, or they are caught with possession and intent to sell. And I think when you're an addict, and you're not sober, you just don't, your brain does not think about anything else besides getting high or anything else besides just you know i've got to 
get this money or I've got to do this task or, and you're not you're not thinking about um, any repercussions or going to jail or what what's this going to be like to have to live with this or whatever. And so maybe the fact that this drug, I feel like this murder was definitely heavily influenced by drugs. Other like maybe it was, you know, this woman, this pastor was seen as like a hindrance to the business or someone was very high and they were offered a lot of money to go do this act or whatever it is. But to me, it definitely seems drug related, just like hearing and uh, about what the town was like more. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's as good of a theory as any. I mean, that's something that definitely jumped out to me as well. And I want to go back to the way that Pastor Daniels died because people have speculated that the way she was murdered offers up clues regarding who, regarding who her killer might be. So I just want to recap really quickly. Reverend Daniels is found face down, laid out like a crucifix behind the pulpit at her church. All of her clothes have been removed. She's been doused in some kind of cleaning solution slash dissolving agent. So that all so all the physical evidence that might have been left at the scene, according to the OSBI, has been destroyed because of this dissolving agent that was poured on her body. And her hair has been burned. There are patches of her scalp that are singed. She was stabbed in the back, chest, neck, and hands. Her head looks like somebody tried to decapitate it. And also her left breast is nearly removed from her body. So we know from the autopsy that there are a lot of stab wounds. In fact, um, there are over 30 stab wounds on her body. And the autopsy report says that a lot of these stab wounds came after she was already dead. So some I have a couple bullet points here that jump out to me about her death. Um, the first one is that she's murdered in the middle of the day on a main street a block away from the police station. That, to me, is insane. Like, yeah, the fact that this happened in the middle of a day, like, we watched that surveillance footage where there's a lot of people at that gas station, and it was so close to the police station, so close to a house, yet nobody heard anything, and it still remains unsolved. Um, that, to me, is just insane. The second thing that jumps out to me is the fact that she was laid out in a crucifix position. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. to me, I think that's important because... The autopsy shows that she was staged like that on purpose after she was already dead. Mm -hmm. So somebody took the time to put her in that position. Yeah. And if they stabbed her in her hands, too, that's kind of like crucifying someone. Oh, that's a good point, too. Right? Yeah. I mean, it could be. I was thinking, too, with the left breast, maybe they were trying to stab through her heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That could definitely be what happened. And that's also why they say they don't know. Like, you can, they can tell that the stab wounds to the neck. They were trying to decapitate her, but they, for the heart um, and the left breast, they're not sure if they were intentionally trying to remove that part of her body or, to your point, maybe they were just trying to stab her heart. Um, the third thing that jumps out at me is her hair is burned. To me, that's super random. I mean, you're taking the time to murder this person and you're taking the time to light their hair on fire on purpose, intentionally. Is this some sort of, like, ritual, like a witchcraft or something? Are you going to tell me there's, like, a hand of glory type situation? So there definitely seems to be some sort of ritualistic aspect to this murder that people have speculated about. But before I get into that, the, the last two things that jump out at me are the clothes and the murder weapon are never found. 
And whoever murdered her had the forethought to destroy all physical evidence by bringing a dissolving agent with them to the murder scene. And Mm -hmm. so people, let's start with, with the burning, because people have pointed out how weird it is that her hair was burnt, but not her body. And it seems totally random. So... Following this piece of evidence being made public, many people in Anadarko started speculating about what the significance of the burnt hair could be. And since Anadarko is a town with a primarily Native population, the police even consulted with Native elders in the area to see if burnt hair might hold any significance. And they found that it does. So I found this article written on um, vice.com, written by Browdy Bly Billy, called The True Story of Indigenous Hair. And she writes, like the, lang- like the languages, traditional clothing, cooking styles, and belief systems that vary incredibly throughout indigenous communities across the country, so does the way natives wear their hair. Though historically distinct from nation to nation, it's safe to say that indigenous culture as a whole has a special relationship with hair. From birth to death, hair is respected as an intimate extension of the self, as well as a connection to the world. Of course, the specific powers of hair vary from tribe to tribe. For the Navajo Nation, hair is traditionally only cut in circumstances of mourning, while the Apache people hold hair-cutting ceremonies each spring to ensure health and success. Seminole Indians, along with many other nations, believe that hair must be protected and out of reach from those who will use your hair against you with bad medicine. As the article noted, Native culture is not a monolith, right? There are a variety of practices that depend on which tribe you belong to. And you may remember that this particular area of Oklahoma is home to the Kiowa tribe, the Comanche Nation, the Apache tribe, the Wichita tribes, the Caddo Nation, and Delaware Nation, and the Fort Sill Apache tribe. And the Anadarko people, which the city is named after, are members of the Caddo Nation, which I said at the beginning of the episode. So... I was looking up significance for women um, and their hair in the Caddo Nation, and I found one article that said that Caddo women usually wore their hair long and in a bun. And much like we just learned from that Vice article about the Seminoles, the buns were thought to keep the hair of women of the Caddo Nation safe from people who might use it against them. And according to SisterSky.com, a native-run website, quote, Touching someone's hair without permission is considered disrespectful. And, quote, not allowing others to touch your hair is a way of protecting oneself from the energy of someone you know nothing about. So, Natalia, what are your thoughts on this? Given this information, what significance might it mean for someone to have burnt Carol's hair? Well, it could, it sounds like it could mean two things. It could just be like an act of disrespect because part of this, um, culture of native american like hair relations i want to call it sounds like touching someone's hair or cutting someone's hair is like a huge fuck you basically so burning someone's hair off might just be like a further way to like humiliate a corpse after death I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, those articles all at at like the base level of what we've learned, it sounds like at the very least, burning her hair would be an act of disrespect, like you said. Um, And then at maybe like the highest level of 
um, like superstition or cultural belief that we've learned about, it seems like perhaps taking it a step further, someone may have wanted to remove her hair to um, use her hair against her to maybe curse her or to, to mm-hmm. like prove a point about something. And the next intriguing aspect to Carol's murder, obviously, which we've pointed out, is that she was set up in a crucifix position, which you said sounds like it may be sort of a ritualistic murder then that we're dealing with here. Yeah. And it could be. Yeah. And before I really dive into that theory, I just want to add in here before I forget that a lot of people have tried to file Freedom of Information Act requests for documents relating to this case. And while some documents like Carol's autopsy have been made public, many, many other documents have not. And I actually found a whole website that has that shows letters that people have written, like journalists, um, just regular everyday people that have tried to get the records for Carol's murder released to the public. Because this is a cold case mm-hmm. now. This happened in 2009. And the DA has publicly said, like, we've had all the dead ends. We think we know who did it. But we like short of a witness or new evidence like there's nothing we can do which is kind of unacceptable right like that seems absurd yeah but like people who are murderers or people who understand how the justice system works understand that you can definitely have done something and you can even have confessed to something but if there's no evidence or there's no uh way to back that up like the police can't really do anything about it. Yeah, definitely. And it's just interesting how they have refused to release records regarding this case. And going through, I found this website, like I said, where it shows people who have requested Freedom of Information Act um, documents uh, for certain cases. And then it also shows the response of law enforcement. And so um, one of these responses was sent from the Anadarko Police Department to a woman named Anna who was requesting the files. And this letter reads, quote, you sent a request to Caddo County Sheriff Department, which was then brought to me. I have looked and we do not have any files from the Carol Daniels homicide. I have been told that after OSBI was called in and arrived on scene, they took over the investigation meaning that they have the interviews, the photos, statements, footage, etc., if there even is any. I do not know who the investigator is for Ms. Daniels' case with the OSBI. Also in your letter, you requested any files on Denise Darnell Cooper and Kevin Mahan. There is a search fee of $25 per hour. To get all of the requesting, it will take several hours of my time to search for the information you are requesting. If you are still interested in the information, please let me know. I apologize for any inconvenience. Crystal Labrada, records clerk at the Anadarko Police Department. So, okay, so she's basically saying like, hey, you're asking me to do a lot of work and this is how much it's going to cost. Can you afford this before I even try to do this? Yeah, or it kind of also sounds like she's saying, I don't know how many hours of my time this is going to take and it's 25 an hour. So if you're willing to spend like an unknown amount of money, let me know and I'll like get on that. Yeah. yeah. And then this same woman, Anna. But I'm also like $25 an hour. Like, so if I, we found a way to like get this woman 500 bucks, I bet she'd find it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But Anna um, decided, the same woman, she decides, okay, 
So this lady from the Anadarko Police Department wasn't very helpful. She says that supposedly all the files are now with the OSBI. So she also sends a freedom of information request to the OSBI. And this was the response that she got. Dear Anna P., Please be advised that your Open Records Act request via email dated April 24, 2019, under the Oklahoma Open Records Act, is hereby respectfully denied. The records and items you requested are confidential and not open to the public. The OSBI may have records responsive to your request as a result of an OSBI investigation. Consequently, they are confidential pursuant to statute and the decision in Hicks v. Thompson, and therefore exempt from the Oklahoma Open Records Act. Thank you for your cooperation and consideration. Respectfully, Richard L. Smotherman, Chief Counsel of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. So hmm. basically, as Anna discovered and many other journalists and members of the public discovered, these records are not going to be released anytime soon. Even though it's a cold case, mm-hmm. even though the police say they're not actively working it um, unless they a new lead arrives, there's there's nothing anyone can do to get all of the records. So now with all of that information I've just given you, let's get into the theories yeah. of this case, the theories that people have right. regarding this case. There are six theories about what possibly happened could have happened here with this murder. So theory number one, because of the type of people Carol ministered to, such as drug addicts, drug dealers and criminals, Some people speculate that perhaps someone had confessed to her or perhaps she somehow found out Mm. about a drug trafficking ring in her area and she was murdered to keep people from speaking out. So, (sighs) you know, let's think about all the people here who tried to speak out and eventually were found dead. Right. That's true. So we've got the car wash guy. Then we've got um, that other woman who was a witness and we don't know if the police officer who shot himself in the chest or not was involved but maybe who knows maybe someone was like hey i'm gonna kill your family if you you know yeah maybe he was on to something right like because his his suicide came as a shock to everyone and the only thing they could figure out was that he had often said he had nightmares about this case from what he saw in the church that day yeah i don't know there's a yeah it's, it's a lot of people a lot of people who wanted to say anything about this right. are gone now. And But, you know, maybe some points against that theory are, okay, so somebody confessed to her and people were worried she was going to tell the police about some drug ring that was going on. But why would you then murder her in this ritualistic fashion? Like, why not just, you know, stab her like you said? Like you said, you know, this wasn't just a stabbing murder at the beginning. You said that like, yeah, why not just shoot her or stab her and then leave? Why go the extra mile with all of these other steps that were taken? I don't know. Maybe maybe just to play devil's advocate, maybe just to throw people off more, you know? Yeah. Like to be be. to be like, oh, yeah, this was just a crazy drug, crazy crackhead guy like came in here and, you know, or to make it seem like a hate crime. When really it's not. Yeah. I don't know. No, that's a good point. Like it could have this all could have been like a red herring to throw police off. Or I mean, maybe it could have been 
to send a message to everyone who went to church there. Like maybe the person who murdered her was kind of trying to say, hey, religion can't save you. Like I run this town. Like you can't put me in jail. You can't confess to this woman. You can't better your life. You are forever going to be stuck either if we think it was Denise and she was a known drug dealer, maybe it's like, hey, you will always be stuck um, under my rules. You will be stuck buying drugs from me and there's nothing you can do to better yourself. Yeah. So that's one of the theories. Then we get into theory number two, which was that Carol was murdered in a ritualistic ceremony that may have been satanic in nature. Mm. So like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people think this murder was satanic and the main reason for that is because carol was laid out in a crucifix position and murdered in a church so yeah. I, I looked into crime scene profiling to see if i could find anything useful to help interpret carol's crime scene and this is what i found according to psychologytoday.com the fbi profiler may encounter deliberate alterations of the crime scene or the victim's body position at the scene of a murder if these alterations are made for the purpose of confusing or otherwise misleading criminal investigators, then yep. they are called staging and they are considered to be part of the killer's M.O. On the other hand, if the crime scene alterations only serve the fantasy needs of the offender, then they are considered part of the signature and they are referred to as posing. Sometimes a victim's body is posed to send a message to the police or public. For example, Jack the Ripper sometimes posed his victims' nude bodies with their legs spread apart to shock onlookers and the police in Victoria, England. Now, while Carol's body was found without clothes, the police have said publicly that she was not sexually assaulted in any way. Therefore, it's more likely that the removal of her clothes was to cover up any DNA evidence left at the scene and is unimportant when determining the killer's M.O., but what is important is the posing of the body in a crucifix position, which people speculate was intentional given that Carol was found in a church. It was likely meant to shock people, and some speculate it was meant to be a direct middle finger to God. And some, some people also say that this murder was a follower of Satan carrying out the ultimate act of desecration in order to gain something from the devil himself. Natalia, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's like so, There, that's a lot. Because at first I thought it was maybe some staging, right? Like they're doing that to throw the police off. But a middle finger to God. It's hard for me to put myself in that position of like being a murderer who's doing it just to give a middle finger to God because like I'm surrounded by ideas that I don't believe in all the time and then I'm not like, oh, I'm gonna like make a murder just to say fuck you to this person who has right. a different belief than me, you know? So I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know what it's like to be a criminally insane satanic worshiper who's about to murder someone. So like when you ask me, what are my thoughts? I don't know, Alyssa. <laughs> I'm stressed out. This is haunted. Uh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, I think, I think, you know, this maybe like, let's just play along and say that this is like valid because that's the point of our podcast, right? We listen to all the theories and we're like, okay, here are the points towards that theory, right? If, right. you know, like the thought, the fact that she was murdered in a church behind her pastor's pulpit 
and placed in a crucifix position. Yeah, it seems pretty haunted. Right. And it also seems like it has to have some religious meaning, right? Otherwise, why do that? Oh, yeah. I definitely think if she was not a pastor, this wouldn't have happened to her. Right. And like, and even though she was a pastor, like, why not? I don't know. Like, why not murder her um, in her car? You know, why not murder her in the parking lot? Why not murder her and then just leave her there and not stage the body? So that's why people say this is a middle finger to God or this is satanic in nature because they took the time to add those almost blasphemous elements right like can you think of a greater blasphemy than murdering a pastor in a church and setting up her body in a crucifix yeah i mean no i cannot yeah (laughs) um well i do know in oklahoma in the capital there is a statue of baphomet with like children on his lap because there was so much um like christian shit going up all around Oklahoma like if you drive through Oklahoma there's crosses everywhere there's like giant 150 foot crosses in places like they're even on the buildings in downtown Oklahoma City they like light up at night to make a cross even when it's not Christmas which I just feel like is overkill but they they do that and so to push back against that there was a group of people who uh, like they they put some I think they put a Jesus or something like that in the state capitol so people were like oh okay well if we're gonna break this you know separation of church and state then we just also should have a a statue of baphomet in there and they're like if you know if this is just about freedom of expression it's not about like any certain religion and so they like literally got this giant statue of a satanic a satanic <laughs> goat goat man with a giant pentagram on it and then two children sitting on each knee so like there is this pushback against you know christianity there there is that there so like i i i can't say i'm not surprised because i am surprised this is horrific but yeah it definitely sounds like it was motivated maybe by some sort of ritual i don't want to say it was satanic people because then the satanists are going to be like satanism is actually really misunderstood (laughs) well no but i think i think we can all agree that like a statue of baphomet is hilarious with like children sitting on his legs like that's not someone who's going to go out and murder someone that's someone that's just like hey you can't it's not okay to say we have separation of church and state and then to erect a giant statue of Jesus on like government property. Right. So right. that yeah. I think we can like all agree. That's pretty fucking funny to have that statue. Yeah. What, but I think we can also maybe look at just like going on like past episodes we've done. Remember that goat man episode I did. And yeah. we talked about how like there was this whole folklore about this farmer who didn't want to die and so he made a deal with the devil and then like he had to kill and like drain blood in order to like have that covenant with the devil he had to like desecrate an innocent goat or whatever it was an innocent animal and so I think maybe she was a ritual sacrifice right so I think that's what people are saying like how more pure can you get than someone who literally does not give a shit about how much money they're making and mm-hmm. is going to an underserved community to like just if anyone pops in to like say hey i'm here with you i think you matter and then to like right. m- murder her and almost use her religion against her like murder her in a yeah. sacred place of worship and then 
like further desecrate her by laying her out like Jesus. Right. She was like the only person in that whole town who sounds like her heart was pure, you know? Right. Maybe she was the only option for sacrifice. Or, yeah, she was an outsider. Like, she was trying to improve, you know, whether or not you agree that the right way to improve a town is to implement religion, I think is sort of, like, beyond, like not relevant. I think, like... Yeah, it sounds like she was doing therapy. Like, she was kind of being, like, a guidance counselor type situation. Right, exactly. It sounds like she was doing. Yeah. Okay, so that's... She didn't even regularly do sermons. No, exactly. So that was theory number two. Now we move on to theory number three. And you actually mentioned this already, Natalia. You said this sounds kind of like a hate crime. And a lot of people agree with that. And so according to the census information I read you, quote, Black and African-American population is less than 6% in Anadarko. And there have sadly been many cases in U.S. history of black people being murdered or lynched in some form of hate crime and some people have even drawn parallels between the crucifixion of christ and lynchings and to expound upon that a little bit um according to wikipedia the definition of a lynching is quote an extrajudicial killing by a group it is most often used to characterize informal public executions by a mob in order to punish an alleged transgressor transgressor punish a convicted transgressor or to intimidate it can also be an extreme form of informal group social control and it is often conducted with the display of a public spectacle often in the form of a hanging for maximum intimidation instances of lynching and similar mob violence can be found in every society around the globe but in the united states lynchings of african americans became frequent in the south during the period after the quote reconstruction era so people mm-hmm. think that you know like look obviously the purpose of her murder was to send a message and intimidate people right therefore by its very definition this was a lynching and motivated by hate because carol was a black woman that's what this the people who believe in this theory say i don't know I, I still think it's the other one. I think there's some sort of paranormal aspect to it because it definitely could be a hate crime, but that's just, it's too, why do all that other stuff, you know? Right. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of extra aspects that kind of make this, even if it is a hate crime, it's a hate crime with some sort of ritualistic aspect to it. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, now we get into theory number four which is that Anna Darko as a whole is cursed. Oh, yeah. Well, duh. To me, that and <laughs> the ritual aspect of it goes to. Yeah, like, that's why no one wanted that job. There's no fuck. Like, just looking at the picture of the church, I knew it was haunted already. Right. Yeah, that you that's said what that. I was saying. Yeah, and that's what I was saying about, like, all, all of the stuff surrounding this case going so wrong just shows you that this town is full of, it's just like a cursed town. Like every individual there is experiencing uh, some sort of ginormous personal haunting, you know? It's not just like, oh, you know, I have a stalker online that's bothering me. It's like, oh, I have a drug problem and someone's trying to kill me. Right. You know? Yeah, it's it's definitely seems like there's a curse. And actually, there is some like legitimacy to this theory because apparently there was an alleged Native American curse which was placed on the white settlers of the area following the massacre of Washita River. So you remember how I said at the beginning that Anadarko is located near the Washita River? 
Yeah. Okay. So in 1868, General Custer's 7th Cavalry attacked the Cheyenne people who were living on the Washita River. And Custer's soldiers decimated the peaceful Cheyenne, and they even killed women and children in addition to warriors, although they took many captive to serve as hostages and to use as human shields. And the Indian Bureau has classified this event as a, quote, massacre of innocent Indians, and many humanitarian groups have denounced it as, quote, cold-blooded butchery. And according to legend, prior to this massacre, Custer had had a meeting with the chief of the Cheyenne tribe. And according to Cheyenne oral tradition, when Custer caught up with the Cheyenne at Sweetwater, there was a meeting in Medicine Arrow's Lodge, and Custer was asked to smoke a pipe, and it went around the lodge. When it came back around, the chief dumped the ashes on Custer's boots, telling him that, quote, if Custer ever lied to the Cheyenne or attacked the Cheyenne, he and his men would be cursed and killed. Apparently, when Custer violated this agreement with the Cheyenne, a curse was forever placed on the land. Therefore, while obviously Pastor Carol Daniels did absolutely nothing wrong here as far as we know, some people think that she was simply a victim of this curse. As evidence for the curse, people point to all of the witnesses who died in the case and the police officer who killed himself, and they point to the fact that Anadarko is plagued by poverty, gangs, drugs, and death. Additionally, some people point out the fact that 20,000 people originally lived in Anadarko, but then that number dropped quickly to 2,000 in the early 1900s. Remember I said that? Like in six years. And we don't know why that happened. So people say that's further evidence of a curse. Um, Also, like we said at the beginning, Anadarko's population hovers around 6660 people whenever a census is taken. Curse. Cursed. Curse. So curse. that is theory number four. I mean, there seems to be a lot of evidence, right, for a curse on this particular property. Right. Well, those two, the paranormal, like, satanic worshipping thing goes hand in hand with cursed land to me. Like, they're the same thing. Like, if your land is cursed, there's going to be people who are drawn to dark energy there. Oh, abs- that's sure. a great point. Yeah, definitely. So now we get into the last two theories of this story. Theory number five, um, this next theory some of you may remember from the Jameson family episode because I actually talked about Pastor Carol's murder in that episode. Wait, you did? Yeah, I did. So you may remember from that episode that there is a phenomenon which has been called, quote, a spooky synchronicity and, quote, the line of tragedy. And that phenomenon is known as the 35th degree latitude. Oh, yes, yes. I do remember this. So this theory states that along the 35th degree latitude, a whole string of brutal murders have occurred, including the case of Andrea Yates, who murdered five of her children by drowning them in a bathtub, the suspicious death of the Jameson family, the Oklahoma City bombing carried out by Timothy McVeigh, and yes, the ritualistic murder of Carol Daniels. Natalia, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's all just pointing back to the paranormal right it's all pointing back to the curse like this this 35th line is cursed for sure there was like an ancient ancient blood curse put on this land that also is just showing up in so many different ways in different cultures like maybe you call that the 35th whatever the fuck or maybe you call that the chief cursed this land 
or maybe you call that this city has a high poverty rating like whatever you want to call that cursed right and i mean if we combine a lot of these curse theories together i mean it's possible that the 35th latitude is cursed and the town is cursed from general custer's massacre and Mm -hmm. you know it's you know what I mean? It's just like uh, it compounds. So there could be several curses at play right. here. And the yeah. sixth and final theory is that it's a cover up. For what? So some people think it's a cover up because how is it possible that two drug dealing meth heads left no physical evidence at the scene? Also, the church was torn down only a couple of months after the murder, potentially destroying any missed evidence. Also, why won't the police just release the files for the case after so many years? They keep denying Freedom of Information Act requests, like I said. And also of interest, the police have publicly stated that they think this was, quote, a drug addict looking for a looking to commit a burglary for drug money and that quote this is a case of a burglary gone bad but a lot of people including experts are like what what the fuck are you talking about and the washington examiner asked a forensic pathologist to look at the autopsy report and he said police have not said if any items were missing from daniels or the church but it's unlikely in my professional opinion that the killing was a burglary gone bad The nature of Daniel's wounds indicate that the killer likely knew her and was enraged. In the case in the case of a robbery, he's not going to hang around and keep slashing at her, stabbing over and over and taking the time to stage the body. The, The most fatal injuries are those around her neck, said Mannion, who analyzed the report of at the request of the AP. I would say, based on the fact that both sides of the neck have major wounds associated with them, that she would be nearly decapitated when she was found. And slices on both of Daniel's hands are classic defense wounds and indicate the attacker, that the attacker used some kind of knife, Mannion added. Quote, she was putting her hands up to try to confront her assailant, he said. Several large gashes to Daniel's chest, along with stab wounds to her stomach and back, likely were inflicted after her death. Investigators have said that whoever killed Daniels posed her body in an unnatural position or staged it, but have declined to elaborate. The staging of the body is extremely rare, Mannion said, and usually means the killer either wanted to thwart investigators or shock whoever discovered the body. Quote, it's something to repel and nauseate people, something very shocking to try and upset people investigating the crime, he said. So that's why people think it's a cover up, because the police are saying, oh, this is just a drug dealer, went crazy, tried to rob her. But everyone else is Mm -hmm. pointing out, like, look, she had no money. She had nothing of value. The church is like an old, broken down building. And this is this like this murder has none of the hallmarks of a drug dealer who's on meth coming in and stealing stuff from her like a drug dealer on meth. That's not thinking properly isn't going to take a dissolving agent with them like isn't going to steal her clothes, isn't going to destroy physical evidence, isn't going to have the intelligence and forethought to not even leave a fingerprint anywhere at the scene. Also, the police tore down the building so that they can't even go in there with like a new team of investigators and try to like look for more evidence. Right. Well, the police tore down the building? Yes. Well, if your police force is haunted, then that's just further proof of a curse, right? Right. Right. Yeah, it could be. 
So I'm going to show you, Natalia, what the site currently looks like where the church used to be. I showed you a picture of the church when it was still there. Now I'm going to show you what it currently looks like on Google Maps. Okay, yeah, this is very haunted. It's the just two buildings and then in the middle of the two buildings, like, raised to the ground. There's literally nothing there. It's just a... A concrete patch with a concrete cross and two benches. Right. And the there. And so it looks like someone made a memorial. Exactly. And what do the benches say? I just sent you a second picture. It says, in memory of Carol Daniels on the back of the benches. And then um, the cross says IHS. Right. So, you know, this this um, church was torn down ultimately, like we said, just a few months after her murder. The murder remains unsolved, sadly. Yeah, so currently the town of Anadarko has erected a memorial in honor of Reverend Daniels where the church once stood. And I know this is like a super long shot, but since our podcast is getting a little bit bigger, I just wanted to add in here, if you have any information regarding the death of Carol Daniels, please contact the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation at 1-800-522-8017. That is um, the official phone number where you can call to give anonymous tips on any unsolved crime, including cold cases. Yeah. And if anyone lives in Anadarko and has more information on this, let us know too. Yeah, or if you're nearby or you know anyone or you've heard a rumor, yeah, definitely let us know um, or call the police directly. And that is the story of the ritualistic murder of Reverend Carol Daniels. Natalia, what are your closing thoughts on this case? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's like you said in the beginning of this story that this is just a sad story. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think it really has to do with whether you're religious or not. I think, like, just take out the religious aspect of it. This was a person who saw an opportunity to help people to get out of, you know, a tough spot in their life. And then instead of, you know, being able to help anyone, people just brought her down instead. It's just shitty. Yeah, it's it's just like really sad. It's a shitty story, right? And that's why I gave that disclaimer at the beginning because normally we'll have like, here's the story of a haunted house and oh, a 100 year old yeah. mirror with an old woman in it. Like this is not one of those stories. Right. This is very real. It's unsolved. It deserves attention, mm-hmm. and there is a paranormal aspect to it. But overall, it's just very sad. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I I guess we'll just have to. Hope that there's some more information that comes to light about it. Right? Yeah, definitely. Because as things are right now, it seems like there's no really moving forward. Right. Well, I don't know if you want to do our sign off, Natalia, or if you don't, it's up to you. Okay. Um, well, I was going to say BRB. Got to go to my rag town, but I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> um. BRB, gotta go sit on Baphomet's lap and see if I can get some attention. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. My sources for this episode were The Autopsy Report of Carol Daniels, Wikipedia, a variety of different articles published in News9.com, MuckRock.com, 
Google Earth, Oklahoma's Inmate Database, Route 66 Fear Fix Podcast, NPS.gov, The Washington Examiner, SagePub.com Chapter 2 Crime Scene Profiling, and an article written by Scott A. Bonn, Ph.D., entitled Serial Killers, Modus Operandi, Signature, Staging, and Posing.